Good morning and Happy New Year. Um, my name is Mary Norton, and I'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 23. This is found on page 893 in the Black Chair Bible in front of you, if you'd like to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is unwashed, hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, You have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, Whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, as you can tell from the passage that Mary just read for us, we are starting the new year back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so we're going to be back in Mark for about the next four weeks, uh, finishing up through chapter 8, and then uh, we're going to jump back into 1 Samuel. Uh, so just a little preview of what's to come uh, this semester, uh, this semester, yes, this new year as well. Um, Got my mind on school for some reason. 
Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll jump into Mark's heaven. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it is pure and clean and good for us. We pray this morning that you would help us to submit our hearts to it. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to behold wondrous things from your law. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, perhaps the first and most important step in seeking a cure for something is is getting an accurate diagnosis of the problem. Whether it's your car making a funny noise under the hood or a severe pain in your abdomen, symptoms must be carefully interpreted so that underlying causes are rightly addressed and dealt with. Misdiagnosing the source of the problem can be costly, even fatal. A study put out last month showed that nearly 6% of the estimated 130 million people who go to the emergency rooms in the U.S. every year are misdiagnosed, which is about one in every 18 patients receiving the wrong diagnosis initially. Now, I, I don't tell you this to scare you away from going to the ER or from going to see your doctor, but simply to illustrate that misdiagnosing the problem will lead you to misdiagnosing the solution. You may end up treating the symptoms, but ultimately the the wrong diagnosis will cause us to miss the true source of the problem and look for a cure in the wrong thing. This is the very issue we find Jesus addressing in our sermon passage this morning. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, we find two episodes in the ministry of Jesus. In verses 1 to 13, we find Jesus confronting Jewish religious leaders who've made a massive spiritual misdiagnosis about the source of their defilement. But in verses 14 to 23, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and like the skilled and superior physician that he is, gets straight to the heart of the matter. And it's this idea of defilement that really holds these two episodes together. In fact, it brackets the entire entire passage. In in, uh, verse 2, the Pharisees charge the disciples with having defiled hands. And then in verses 14 to 23, Jesus uses the word defile five times to reveal and pinpoint its true source. So Jesus and the Pharisees both agree that we have a defilement problem, but they have very different understandings for its source and its solution. What really defiles a person? I wonder how you would answer that question. I wonder if that question even strikes you as a bit odd. Defilement. Westerners like ourselves have largely done away with this idea of defilement. It's a foreign word to most of us, something we don't really have a category for anymore, for something to be unholy, impure, unclean, especially as it relates to a person's relationship to God. But whereas we may have done away with this concept of defilement, Jesus in this passage seems very, very concerned about it. 
What really defiles a person? That's the question at the heart of our passage this morning. And here's the answer that Jesus gives. This is what I think is the main idea of these verses. The problem of our defilement is not external, but internal. The problem of our defilement is not external, but internal. And we see Jesus get at this really in two ways in these verses. In verses 1 to 13, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for, for wrongly using religion as the remedy. But in verses 14 to 23, Jesus cuts straight to the heart of what really defiles us. And so two points that I want us to think about that are going to help us unpack this point that Jesus is making it's point number one, false piety. We'll just look at the false piety of the Pharisees. And then point number two, true defilement, the source of our true defilement. So point number one, false piety. Well, in verse one, Jesus finds himself caught up again in yet another conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus' popularity at this point in his ministry, it, it continues to skyrocket. So another delegation of Israel's religious leaders are, are sent from headquarters in Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. But as we've already seen in Mark's gospel, anytime Israel's leaders come to Jesus from Jerusalem, things can get pretty chippy. Because remember the last time we saw the Pharisees and the scribes coming from Jerusalem to check on Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30 when they charged Jesus with being in cahoots with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now they're back for round two, and we're not meant to see their arrival as any less friendly as it was back in Mark 3. In fact, the, the whole scene appears just to escalate the tension to brand new levels. So what's the spark that sets off the showdown this time? Well, in verse 2, the the Pharisees observe that some of Jesus' disciples are eating bread with unclean hands. They were violating an, an oral tradition passed down by Israel's religious leaders meant to address uh, the issue of, of, of one's ritualistic defilement after one's exposure to things that would have made you unclean. So the concern here wasn't your hygiene as much as it was your holiness. So the battle over hand-washing here, it wasn't like the battle that's currently raging inside my home right now, as we're constantly reminding our kids to wash their hands before they eat. Hand-washing for the Pharisees, it wasn't about washing away the physical dirt or the nasty germs that they may have picked up while they were out in public. No, it, it was an attempt to preserve and to promote a kind of religious purity they believed would make them more acceptable to God. And in verses 3 to 4, Mark, Mark himself kind of breaks into the scene to provide an explanation of this, this Jewish practice for his largely Gentile Roman readers. And then in verse 5, Mark returns to the scene proper as the Pharisees launch their their public and formal accusation against Jesus and his disciples. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially, 
unclean hands? Now, what's, what's key to notice here in verse 5 isn't how concerned the Pharisees are with making sure that they were ceremonially, un, or ceremonially clean. The key is, the emphasis is on, is on what Mark and even the Pharisees' own words show us. It's why they were so concerned with being clean. And it, was, it wasn't because they were adamant about keeping the commands of the Old Testament law, even though these guys were supposed to be the experts in it. No, it was because they were adamant about keeping the tradition of the elders. Three times in these first five verses, Mark shows us the Pharisees putting the emphasis on the tradition of the elders. First in verse 3, then again in verse 4, and all of these extra practices, then again explicitly in verse 5. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with tradition. In fact, tradition, when it's kept in its rightful place, can be a good thing. We all have our traditions. Last week, you practiced traditions as you gathered around the Christmas tree or you sat around the dinner table. Mom always makes this meal. Grandpa always sits here. I always sit here. The kids always sit over here. Last night, some of you stayed up until midnight and you banged pots and pans or shot off fireworks to ring in the new year, as is your tradition. Our schools have traditions. At Ohio State, you dot the I. At Arkansas, you call the hogs. We have tradition in weddings, tradition in our families, tradition in our communities, like putting something you pretend is chili on top of spaghetti. It's a tradition I'm still trying to get used to in this community. We have traditions in our churches. We've always done this ministry this way. We've always sung this hymn that way. We have tradition from the heritage of faith we've inherited from generations that have gone before us. The Reformed tradition, the Baptist tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, the Evangelical Free tradition. Even the New Testament speaks about the importance of contending for the faith. That is the gospel tradition that was once for all delivered over to the saints. So in one way or another, we're all adherents to tradition. And so tradition isn't automatically a bad thing. The problem, the problem is when our traditions become our masters and we supplant God's word with them. And that's what's going on here. The Pharisees were taking the religious traditions of the elders and making them binding and mandatory upon all Jews as if God himself had given them. And this turned these traditions into a kind of litmus test for measuring one's faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. But this tradition of ceremonially washing your hands wasn't something the elders had received from God. The Mosaic law required priests to wash before they could enter into the tabernacle and make sacrifices, but there was no Old Testament law that required Jews to wash their hands before every meal. 
But the elders, in order to show how seriously they took their own personal piety and holiness, took the command given to priests and they extended it or added it to ordinary people eating ordinary foods. And the marketplace from which Jesus and his disciples had had just come back in Mark chapter 6, verse 56, was a major source of Uh, for the kind of defilement that the Jewish elders had built this whole oral tradition uh, in order to protect them from. So the oral tradition of the elders, of which this practice of hand-washing was just one small piece, was like this big fence that they'd built for safeguarding them from violating the Old Testament and for keeping out the threat of religious defilement. That was the whole purpose of the oral tradition, in fact. All these extra-biblical, meticulous rules and regulations to keep the defilement out there so it can't get close to us in here. It's kind of like the way many of us approached the COVID-19 virus in the early days of the pandemic. Remember those? My wife was a nurse at the time, so when she was done with her shift, the first thing she would do when she got home was put her clothes in the washing machine and take a shower before hugging or kissing me or the kids. At the time, we thought it was a good and necessary precaution that would protect us from the virus and keep us undefiled. I think something similar is going on here. So the problem wasn't, the problem wasn't with the Pharisees' concern for purity or even with the extra measure, measures that they put in place to protect it. So what was the problem then? What was the problem? Well, Jesus Jesus spells it out for us in verses 16 to 13. And here, Jesus, Jesus goes on the offensive, countering the Pharisees' accusation with, with an accusation of his own. And he does so by picking up words from the book of Isaiah. You see those there in verses 6 and 7. The prophet Isaiah had initially spoken these words as an indictment against Israel and and her religious leaders who were pretending to worship God externally while internally they were pursuing their own agendas. And here, Jesus says Israel's current religious leaders weren't any better because they were infusing their traditions and customs with the same authority and weight as God's revealed word. They were teaching their their human traditions as if they were divine commands and then mandating them or requiring them of others. And this is why Jesus quotes from these verses in in Isaiah 29. Notice the first half of, of the quote. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. This is why he calls them hypocrites in verse 6, because the way they were elevating their traditions over God's revelation, it actually invalidated their external devotion to God and, and revealed a heart that was actually far from him. See, when we think of a hypocrite, we, we tend to to think first in terms of someone's, someone who's, who's a fake, someone who pretends to have religious beliefs and virtues that they don't actually possess. But that doesn't exactly describe the Pharisees here, does it? These guys were going above and 
beyond to ensure that they, they actually really were ceremonially clean. Now, Jesus calls them hypocrites here because even though they were really religious people on the outside, they had no internal love for God. None of what they were doing externally came from a heart glowing and growing in love and affection for God. They had plenty of piety, plenty of that to go around, but it was a piety of the worst kind. It was a piety that was fake because it wasn't motivated by love for God. And so therefore, in God's estimation, it was worthless. Worthless. Three times, three times in verses 8 to 13, Jesus is going to spell out the nature of their hypocrisy in the clearest and most scathing of terms. So verse 8, abandoning the command of God, you hold onto human tradition. Then again, you have a fine way, hear the sarcasm in that, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. Then in verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So what may have started out as a fence to safeguard these guys from infringing the law of God ended up actually tampering with it and displacing the living word of God itself. You can actually see the, the grand canyon-sized divide between the Pharisees and God's word and the way Jesus uh, begins verses 10 to 11. Just look at, those, look at those two verses and how Jesus starts. Verse 10, for Moses said, and verse 11, but you say. Moses said, but you say. I think how far they'd drifted from God's word in practice was like a reflection for how far their hearts had truly drifted from God. It was now their word versus God's word, which Jesus uses this whole conversation about korban to illustrate. Now, what was this, what was this practice of korban? Well, there was an oral tradition called korban that allowed money or, or property that was originally to be set aside to care for your parents to be declared korban. And when something was, was declared korban, those funds then got pledged to the temple upon your debts. And so this oral tradition was like an act of deferred giving that allowed you to effectively circumvent the fifth commandment and keep, your, keep, keep for yourself funds that should have gone to care for your parents. And by doing this, verse 13, Jesus renders the Pharisees guilty of, of actually using this tradition to silence the more important matters of God's revealed word. So this tradition, it gave the appearance of a zealous, a kind of zealous devotion to God. I can't, I can't give this money to my aging mom and dad because I've already committed it. I've already declared it Korban and it's got to go to the temple now. But what, what they were really doing was using the tradition to disobey God and reject doing what God had required of them in the fifth commandment. 
Now, it's, it's so easy for us to, to read these verses and to wonder how in the world any of this applies to us today. All, right, all of this feels very unique, very specific to first century Jews, and especially to the Jewish religious leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes. But here's the deal. The thing is, you and I, we don't have to be a Pharisee or a scribe in first century Israel to have the kind of heart that Jesus condemns in these verses. I mean, how often, how often do we find ourselves just like the Pharisees and the scribes do, convinced, convinced that God is more convinced or more concerned with our outward shows of religious obedience when what he really cares about is if our hearts are actually in it. How often do we find ourselves convinced that that Christianity is more about shows of external obedience to rules than an internal devotion and affection for the living God? I think one of the things a passage like this teaches us is that God is not interested in our worship if he is not really the object of our worship. God calls such worship worthless. So it's worth considering. It's worth considering, is love for God what fuels your obedience to him? Is love for God what fuels your obedience to him? Or have you become more concerned with simply jumping through all of the right religious hoops? Kids and teenagers in the room, this is going to be especially tempting for you. It will be especially tempting for you guys, just as it is for every single adult in this room, to think that God cares more about how you look and how you behave on the outside. But guys, listen to me. What God really wants from you isn't a good show. He doesn't want a good show from you. He wants your whole heart. And what's going on in your heart is what finally matters to him. I think a passage like this, it also teaches us something about our tendency, our tendency to judge others by our own man-made criteria, just as the Pharisees judged Jesus' disciples. I mean, how, how often, how often, sadly, do the little legalists lurking inside each of us condemn others for not keeping the traditions we think are necessary for being a good Christian? How often do we make up rules that aren't in the Bible and then think less of those who don't obey them? Whether it's, it's with your preferred method on, on how we ought to school our children, whether or not Christians are allowed to read Harry Potter or take their kids trick-or-treating, what political candidate a Christian is allowed to vote for, what translation of the Bible we should read, what evangelistic methods we must practice, what clothes you must wear to church. We are, we are masters. We are masters at taking our little human traditions and turning them into divine commands. 
brothers and sisters, beware. Beware of this tendency in your own heart. It is so easy for us, even when it's with the best of intentions, to add to God's word by requiring of others what God never does. We all have our own ideas of what a truly godly person will or won't do. But if God hasn't made clear in Scripture, then it's not our job to show up and supplement God's own voice with our own. One of the ways we can guard ourselves from this tendency is is by filtering our convictions on a matter through the clarifying lens of God's word. This is, what, this is exactly what Jesus models for us in these verses. The Pharisees, they bring their human traditions to Jesus, and what does Jesus do with them? He immediately holds them up under the light of Scripture. That's, that's what he does when he quotes Scripture to them in verses 6 and 10. The Pharisees, they come and they measure Jesus and his disciples by the light of their man-made traditions. But Jesus measures their traditions by the light of God's revealed word. And Jesus is teaching us that any conviction that we come to where scripture is silent must remain subservient to the explicit and the authoritative commands of the Bible. But when we make our our human traditions and our extra-biblical conclusions on tertiary matters the litmus test for one's faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God, we actually end up weakening, even denying the authoritative and the corrective role God's Word is supposed to have over us. Your views on a particular issue might be good and wise and even worthy of you trying to persuade others of. But if scripture doesn't speak to it, then you shouldn't bind them on others as if they were sacrosanct. Where scripture isn't clear or is silent on a specific matter, then then we should leave ample room for Christian freedom. Ample room for Christian freedom. I think one of the ways that we can guard our church from this is through our governing documents that we use. Things like our statement of faith which is a summary of of what we believe as a church. And it can be a powerful tool for promoting unity around the essentials of God's word and protecting us from this kind of legalistic heart. A good statement of faith ought ought to reflect those things that Christians for centuries have have held are necessary for salvation and for gathering together as a church. And this means that in order for a church's statement of faith to build unity at a congregational level, it must be sufficiently clear. It must be a sufficiently clear doctrinal statement while also being a mere statement. And that doesn't mean that it should be so mere or so brief and so general that they don't really say much of anything at all. But a good statement of faith should be complete enough to mark out the doctrinal essentials of the church without being so precise that they exclude people unnecessarily over over some secondary and tertiary issues. Now, I'm sure some of you right now may be thinking, well, well, aren't 
extra things like a statement of faith, the exact kind of thing that that Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for here. Aren't aren't things like a statement of faith just ways of adding on to Scripture? Man-made things we might use to, to bind consciences and demand conformity. Well, perhaps, I mean, any, any good thing can be misused and abused like that. But things like a church's governing doc, documents, when, when rightly used, are there in order to, to build congregational unity around the essentials of the Christian faith and to promote individual Christian liberty. So long as our church documents codify the essential doctrines and promises that God has already codified clearly for us in his word, then we clarify those things that members must agree and where the Bible gives us ample room to disagree. And I think this helps us as a church to hold confidently to the essentials of the Christian faith and to promote freedom in everything else. So brothers and sisters, if, if you want to, to guard yourself and you want to you guard and protect our church from developing a heart of legalism and the kind of false piety that Jesus is no fan of here, then we must learn to hold tightly to God's word and loosely to our personal traditions and rules. We must learn to hold tightly tightly to God's word and loosely to our human traditions. Because the scribes and Pharisees, they held so tightly to their traditions that they most they misunderstood what God was most concerned about. They thought defiled hands were their greatest problem. And because they'd misdiagnosed the problem, it's blinded them to the real source of their defilement which is where Jesus turns in verses 14 to 23. And this is going to bring us to our second and much shorter point. I promise. Point number two, true defilement. So in these verses, Jesus picks back up the issue of defilement that started this showdown way back in in verse two. In verse five, the Pharisees had asked Jesus that loaded question. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders and instead eat bread with defiled hands? And now here in in verses 14 to 15, Jesus, summoning the crowds, answers that question. I'll tell you why they don't wash their hands. Because it's not the things outside a person that defile him. It's what comes from within. And you've got to wonder what the scene must have, have been like at this moment. I mean, at this point, the Pharisees and the scribes, they just kind of drop out of the picture, don't they? They just come all the way from Jerusalem for a second time to trap Jesus. And instead, Jesus once again totally turns the tables on them. And then he turns his back to them. He calls the crowds to him. He takes the mic And he has the audacity to say, this time, listen up, everybody. Nothing that goes into into you from the outside can defile you. What comes out of you defiles you. I mean, this 
This feels seismic at this point in Mark's gospel. So far, we've witnessed Jesus freely eating with sinners and tax collectors in contexts and places where the food was unlikely to be kosher. We've seen him touching lepers, the dead body of Jairus' daughter, a bleeding woman, all actions that would have, would have rendered him ceremonially unclean and defiled according to, according to the Pharisees. And now, here's Jesus announcing with his mouth the point he's been making all along in his ministry with his hands. External things don't make a person unclean. The source of your defilement comes from within. This, this would have been a shocking moment for those within earshot. You can just imagine the Pharisees and the scribes seething with rage and the crowds kind of just looking around at each other going, wait, hold on a second. Did he just say what I think he said? Even, even the disciples were confused. Verse 17. And so Jesus in, in verses 18 breaks it down for them in very stark terms. Look, guys, food doesn't defile you and neither do dirty hands because your food doesn't go into your heart. It, it just goes into your stomach and then it goes out your you-know-what. Food is food. Goes in one end and out the other. And it's this earth-shattering assessment on, on the neutrality of food that leads Mark to slide in this little editorial comment about Jesus declaring all foods clean in, in verse 19 for his Gentile readers. So back in, in Leviticus 11, God had given this exhaustive list of animals and foods that were off limits to God's people. And the reason God had outlawed these foods was, so that, was to remind Israel that they were to be a people set apart and distinct from all the nations around them as a way of reflecting the character and the holiness and the purity of, of God himself. But the thing with these food laws was that they always had an expiration date on them. The food laws were, were temporary and provisional signposts meant to point the people in the direction of the one who would ultimately fulfill them. And here in, in Mark 7, 19, it dawns on Mark as, as he records Jesus's words that that expiration date had finally come to pass because the one who'd come to fulfill them had finally arrived and he was now declaring all foods clean. Now, it would take some time, more time for this to unfold and this reality to dawn throughout the early church where we read of Peter's vision of, of God declaring all foods clean and its implications for the Gentile uh, inclusion in Acts chapter 10. But here, right here, Mark is noting that at this moment, when Jesus spoke these words, the clock had effectively run out on those Old Testament food laws because Jesus was now here telling his disciples that their hearts, their hearts were the source of true defilement. From within, out of the heart, Jesus says in verse 21, come evil thoughts. And then he, he unloads 12 of them. 
sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is a long, sprawling, expansive catalog of, of sin that comes out of the human heart. Not just evil actions, Jesus says, but sinful attitudes and thoughts and ungodly desires. All of it, Jesus says, find their origin in the heart of man. Every single sin, leaving a trail of, of breadcrumbs that leads you back to their home address. A heart in open rebellion against God. John Calvin famously said that the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. A factory pumping out all kinds of sinful attitudes and actions and things to replace God and therefore destroying our fellowship with him. And because such evil lives within each of us, we're now by nature totally void of that holiness that God's law requires of us. Though God had made humanity originally free from sin, one sin committed by our first parents thousands of years ago has polluted our hearts with sin. And now our hearts churn out sin like a conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant rolling out new widgets. This makes us unclean, defiled, and unholy in God's sight. And none of the external measures that we now try to take, as good as they may be, are strong enough to remedy or extract the root cause of what defiles us. Our hand-washing is too weak for how deep our defilement goes. Because the problem of our defilement, the problem of our sin, it is more internal than it is external. Defilement doesn't have to, to work its way into us. It's already there. It's already there lurking in the dark arteries of every human heart. And so it's what naturally comes out. Which means that, which means that the biggest problem in your life and my life, it isn't fundamentally economic or social or educational or political or familial or any other thing that we can think of that exists outside of ourselves. It's us. We're the problem. You and, and me. It's the sin defiling us from the inside out. This, this couldn't be more counter, more up against, more in the face the message that the world is currently whispering in our ears. Whether it is virtually every single Disney princess, and I have heard them all, whether it's music, it's movies, it's our friends, it's advertisements, it's social media. Guys, pick your poison. The message the world is telling us is to follow your heart. 
Follow your heart. See, the world is telling us that the biggest problem in, in our life exists outside of you. That something external has wronged you and is trying to keep you down. And the solution to that problem, it's within. The problem is out there and the solution is in here. So follow your heart. Be yourself. Express yourself. Embrace yourself. Discover yourself. Put off whatever gets in the way of you being you. That's, that's the message of Moana and Elsa. And it sounds like a cute and harmless message. Until we stop and think about all the lost and dark places our hearts have taken us. Until we are staring at the sin that has ransacked us and our world. But Jesus, Jesus shows up and he completely overturns that message, doesn't he? totally turns it upside down. He shows up and he says, your biggest problem isn't out there. Your biggest problem is here. It is right here. So what's the solution? We, we've got the problem. We've got the diagnosis. What's the remedy? Because this all seems like really, really bad news, right? I mean, it's New Year's Day. We're supposed to be thinking positively. The problem is us, and it's our hearts. Then what could possibly do the job of cleaning us up? If it's not our human traditions or following our own religious rules and regulations or following our hearts, what's going to do it? Well, friends, this, this is the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is not that we have to clean up our own mess. It's not more religion. It's not following a long list of, of man-made rules and regulations and some vain attempt to, to try and scrub away the defilement of our hearts. We need something much stronger. Something so clean and so undefiled that it has the power to purify every single thing it touches. What we need is the blood of Jesus. And this is exactly, exactly the very thing that God supplies for us in the gospel. The good news of the Christian faith is that one who actually has clean hands and a pure heart came to redeem us and save us and purify us by spilling his blood for us on the cross. And when we repent of our sins and we turn to him in faith, then God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love the way the, the 18th century English hymn writer and poet William Cooper puts it in his famous hymn, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. If that's not poetry, I don't know what is. Friends, the glorious good news of the gospel is not that we are cleansed by our own righteousness as if we had any, but that we are cleansed by the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God solves the ultimate problem of our defilement not by giving us more religion or more meticulous hand-washing routines to follow. No, he gives us a Savior who is qualified in every single way to reach into our hearts and purify us completely from the inside out. And not only does he cleanse our defiled hearts, he puts his spirit within us, reviving our hearts, regenerating it, giving us not just a new heart, but a pure heart. So that now as people who've been washed by his blood, we're no longer slaves to the endless stream of sin that once pumped out of our polluted hearts. For Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Listen to this. Who are now eager to do good works for his glory. Titus 2.14. Friend, has your heart heart been washed by this Jesus? Has your heart been washed by him? Have you turned from your sin and have you trusted in him? Come to the fountain. Come to the fountain filled with blood and be cleansed. Repent and believe in him. And if you've done that, if you've done that, then remember, remember that your heart has been made new and pure so that you might devote yourself now to good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You no longer need to worry. Christian, listen to this. You no longer need to worry with washing your hands to win God's approval. Because the blood of King Jesus has already washed your heart. Let's just take a moment now of silent reflection to ponder Christ's work for us before we respond by taking the Lord's Supper together.